3. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. Before we delve into God's Word this morning, let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we pray that you will be honored and revered as you deserve. And this morning as we gather as your people and we've remembered the sacrifice that you gave that we might be your people, we praise you, Father, and we're thankful. And Father, we pray that we might live with confidence before you offering our lives as living sacrifices. Father, we pray that You might use our lives in ways that will bring You glory and honor. And this morning, Lord, as we look at Your Word, we pray that we might have eyes that can see what You have given us and ears that can truly hear Your message. We ask all these things through your Son's name. Amen. Sometimes, comedians will cause us to laugh as they describe how men and women see things differently. And if their descriptions of how a man sees things and how a woman sees something compares with what we have experienced, then we will think, yes, that's right. That's how guys look at things, or that's how gals look at things. Well, it's also true that sometimes how people perceive a situation, or even themselves, can be very different from how the Lord sees things. Remember what happened as Israel prepared to enter the land of Canaan? They had sent 12 spies into the land to investigate. The spies came back with a report that in this land of Canaan, there were giants. The people there were large. And they lived in cities that had these high fortified walls. When Israel heard this message, most of them viewed God's command to go in and take this land as an impossible task. 
As Israel looked at the path before them, they saw an impossible task. Most of them did. But as God looked at the situation, those tall people and those fortified cities would pose no problem at all for Israel to move forward because of His power. You see, sometimes the way that people look at things and the way that God looks at something can be very different. Remember when Samuel was sent to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be king over Israel? We can read in 1 Samuel chapter 16, When they arrived, Samuel noticed Eliab and said to himself, Surely here before the Lord stands his chosen king. Here's this individual. Look at him. He's a leader. He's tall. He he has the body of, of a commanding presence. Eliab is someone that God is going to choose. This is going to be the leader. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't be impressed by his appearance. Or his height, for I have rejected him. God does not view things the way men do. People look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Sometimes the Lord sees things very differently from how people see them. Remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus, that Pharisee who came covertly at night to see Jesus and to talk with Him, that, that member of the Jewish ruling council, if you were to ask Nicodemus, how is your relationship with God? Um, what is your relationship with God's kingdom? From the text we see, Nicodemus would have said, good to go. Everything is okay. And Jesus would talk with Nicodemus and told him, I tell you the solemn truth, unless someone is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do not be surprised, I say to you, that you must be born again. Jesus' words put Nicodemus outside with the Gentiles. The rabbinic Jews use this language of being born like a child to describe the conversion that the Gentile needed to become part of God's people. But God, but, but Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born of the water and the Spirit. Sometimes, The Lord sees things very differently from how people see them. When it comes to the relationship that people have with God through Christ, no one can afford to see things differently than the way that the Lord does. But in one of the saddest verses in the Bible, Jesus revealed that some people will perceive themselves in a very different light than the way then He sees them. I think these verses are tragic. Jesus taught the crowds, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, 
Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And do many powerful deeds? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. What Jesus describes here is is not merely people recognizing Him as Lord and saying, Lord, You are the one. You are my Lord. Lord, Lord. Not merely are they recognizing Him as Lord, but He describes people who are justifying this relationship with Him because, well, we have taught in Your name. We have cast out demons in Your name. We have been serving You and and working for You, and we have done many powerful things, deeds in Your name. And then there's those terribly sad, tragic words because their perspective of themselves is different than the Lord's perspective of them. And He says, I never knew You. Depart from Me. In spite of this teaching, the Bible does not want God's people to have any doubt about their relationship with Himself. The Bible is replete with statements showing that God wants His people who are truly His to be confident about their relationship with Him. God's people do not need to doubt that they belong to Him. But what everyone needs to know is whether God identifies him or her as belonging to himself. What we need, what everyone needs, is to have a reliable perspective. Not a viewpoint of of what I think. Not a viewpoint of what my family says or what an educated person has told me. Not the viewpoints of people, but the viewpoint of God. His perspective. And whom God says, these are my people, you are my people. And that's what people need to have. In a brilliant little piece of phraseology in the letter of Galatians, Paul challenges the common way that that people typically speak about their relationship with God. And at the same time, he begins to focus them in how they need to think about our relationship, one's relationship with God. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 9. Now that you know God... And that's how people typically speak about it. I know God. And so I know there's a relationship. And then Paul focuses them into the true heart of what is really important. Or rather, that God knows you. Or rather, that you are known by God. That's what matters. Does God know you as being His? A relationship with God is not based on whatever people might claim. It's based on whether God is recognizing someone as belonging as part of His people. Obviously, people can claim anything and doesn't make it so. Belonging to God is dependent on God saying, you are mine. Claiming to be a Christian does not make it so. What matters is, does God say, yes, you are a disciple. You are a Christian. You are one who belongs to me. What's wonderful and what's great news is that in Scripture, God has made it abundantly clear. 
He's revealed His perspective. He's revealed the principle that He uses to identify who His people are. And so then, His people can live with confidence and they can know. Everyone needs to know the principle by which God is identifying those who are truly His people. And when we ask the question of Scripture, when we come to Scripture and we go through it from cover to cover asking, what is that principle by which God identifies those who belong to Him? We discover a consistent answer. God doesn't change. A consistent answer that unfolds from the Old Testament right into the New Testament. Come with me. Come with me and let's look at some snapshots. Some snapshots from the Bible some stories that reveal why God will point at some people and say, these people are mine. And they can know that they belong to me. Our first two snapshots take us back to about 2,000 years before Jesus to the time of Abraham. In that first snapshot we discover God instructing a man named Abram to prepare some animals that God might make a covenant with him. Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 9. The Lord said to him, Take for me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a pigeon, so Abraham took all these for him and, and then cut them in two and placed, the, placed each half opposite the other. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot with a flaming torch passed between the animal parts. That day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. To your descendants I give this land. Now this language of covenant might be new to us. You know, what is going on here? Well, a, a covenant, as we find it in Scripture... It's a binding promise between two parties. It, it describes a relationship and what is going to happen between two parties. And on this occasion, God is, is making this covenant and He's going to promise Abram, I'm giving you land. And you can know that you're going to get this land because I'm giving it to you on the basis of this covenant. And the idea of taking these animals we can find from the book of Jeremiah is that... When people made covenants, they would, in this manner, they would take the animals and cut them in half and lay these two halves side by side. And then the person who's making the promise would walk in between the, the pieces. And basically the idea is, if I do not keep what I have promised to do, if I do not keep this covenant, then let me be like these animals that have been cut asunder. And what happens in this scene, in this snapshot that we're looking at, is that this smoking fire pot, this representation of God's presence, is what passes between the pieces. It's not Abram who's going to walk between the pieces. God is the one making the promise. And so the presence of God is a smoking fire pot. It passes between the pieces, and God makes this covenant, and He promises Abram, you can know this land is going to be yours. Well, God is going to add another promise to this covenant. And it's in our next snapshot in Genesis chapter 17. In this scene, God tells Abram 
I will confirm my covenant as a perpetual covenant between me and you. It will extend to your descendants after you throughout their generations. I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. In this context, God also repeats the promise of the land. I'm promising you land. But he adds another promise, which we see in verse 7 of chapter 17. I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to be the God of your descendants. And so it's on the basis of this promised relationship in covenant that God says, I'm claiming you as mine, and I'm going to be yours. Now, how could Abraham know for certain that God would be his God? He can know it because God gave him a covenant promising it. And so God, so Abram knew on the basis of this covenant that he belonged to God and God was his God. Well, fast forward with me hundreds of years through history. And in our next snapshot, we find ourselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses has led some of Abraham's descendants, the children of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. And they've gathered at the foot of this mountain, Mount Sinai. And the mountain will soon start rumbling as if shaken by earthquakes while the top of it billows with smoke. God's presence is going to come down on Mount Sinai. And as it descends on Mount Sinai, it causes the top of the mountain to be burnt in this raging fire. But not only is God going to make his presence known at the mountain, but God is about to act in a wonderful way. It all starts with God announcing to Moses what he wants to do with this nation, this new nation of Israel that's just come out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. Thus you will tell the house of Jacob and declare to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. And now, if you will diligently listen to Me and keep My covenant, then you will be My special possession out of all nations. For the whole earth is Mine, and you will be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the Israelites. God tells Moses, I want you to tell the Israelites that I want to claim them as a nation to be my people, a special possession, this holy nation. They're going to be mine. What principle is God using or is he going to use there at Mount Sinai to identify and say, these are my people. This nation belongs to me. How is God going to identify Israel as his people? Was it based on how good they were? No. No. (laughs) Was it based upon how confident they were that they would belong with God? No. Um, Was it based on Israel saying, God is going to be our God? No. It is based upon God offering in grace a covenant to Israel. A covenant in which He's going to promise You are my people, my holy nation. 
You're my special possession. And if Israel would maintain this covenant relationship, God would give them, that God would give them, God promised to recognize them as His. And this time, God was promising to claim not just a man and his descendants, but He's claiming up this whole young nation as His treasured people. Now, Israel did not deserve such a blessing. This is grace that God is pouring out. It's a gift. But Israel could know that they did belong to God, that God was their God and they were His people. They could be certain of it because of the covenant. But that covenant given at Mount Sinai came with stipulations. Israel would have to live in the way that God prescribed. If they're going to walk with God and, and God would be and live and dwell among them, and the story of Mount Sinai then picks up this, this scene that we have in chapter 20. As God gives what we call the Ten Commandments. The instructions on some summary of, of how they must live as His people if this relationship is going to work. And what we call the law involves God's terms and stipulations of this covenant. Exodus chapters 20-23 through 23 outline in brief detail, what God would expect from Israel if they're going to be His treasured possession. How they must live. God had announced His intentions. The people listen to what God wants from them. But God and the people had not yet entered into this relationship. There's going to be a ceremony. And this ceremony is going to seal the relationship. Let's go look at that picture. Let's go see. Exodus 24, verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the, pe- to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. We agree to the conditions and the stipulations of this relationship with God. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And as that blood is from that sacrifice, the blood of the covenant this blood that has the promise that God is going to claim them as His people, as it's sprinkled out on the people, this relationship is sealed. And as a nation, God says, you are mine. That nation now is mine. To ratify this covenant, once again, death occurs. Sacrifices are offered. The blood from these sacrifices is called the blood of the covenant. It's sprinkled on the people. And with that, the people enter into the covenant and receive the promise of God. Who does God recognize as His people? Those who are in a covenant relationship that He has offered to them. 
as a gift of grace. Our next snapshot propels us forward hundreds again, hundreds of years to the time of Jeremiah the prophet. God told his prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, Indeed, a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. It will not be like the old covenant I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt, but I will make a new covenant. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will forgive their sin and will no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. Through Jeremiah, God is going to announce the new basis for a relationship with him. A new covenant is going to come. And and then two of the promises that he he gives are, are, I'm going to claim those in that covenant to be my people. And I'm also going to forgive them of all of their sin. We also see a description. There's a number of descriptions that Jeremiah gives us as to differences between the former covenant and this new one that would come. One of those differences is that the law would be in the minds and the hearts of the people. He will also say that um, they will all know me from the, the greatest of them to the least of them. I have a suggestion for why these are characteristics of those who will be in the new covenant. It's because they have heard the message that God has given and they've chosen to respond to it. And they've chosen to walk in God's ways. And God's ways are now part, part they're embracing them. And God puts his, his ways in their hearts and their minds. And it's not like trying to do taxes like with the IRS, you know, where people may not have the IRS tax code in their heart and their mind. But trying to find a loophole and a way around And as Israel, so many of them would would try to find ways around and and run away from what God was doing. No, in the new covenant, the people are going to have God's ways in their heart and their mind. And all of that belong in this covenant are going to know Him. Who was God going to call His people? What would be God's perspective about who would belong to Him? It would be those who were part of this new covenant agreement. That he would say, these are my people. And I'm also going to forgive all their sins. And so this brings us to our very final snapshot. We find ourselves staring at three Roman crosses on a hill. Although it's daytime, there is no light. Darkness shrouds the landscape. On the center cross is nailed Jesus of Nazareth. At the foot of the cross stand people mocking, taunting. It should come as no surprise to us that just the night before this event, Jesus, as he ate with his apostles, he described the blood of his death as inaugurating God's promised new covenant to humanity. He had been eating that last meal and he took bread and he took the, the cup, the fruit of the vine, and he memorialized his death. And he also, in that memorializing of, of his death and giving them this meal that they were to eat, remembering what he was doing, he showed an awareness of his purpose, of why he had come. 
and what his death would achieve. Luke, in describing that meal and his, him taking the cup in Luke chapter 22, puts it this way. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to die. And the blood that I'm giving, this sacrifice that's going to happen, it's making possible this new covenant that God's going to promise to claim people as His, that God is going to promise to forgive their sins. Matthew, as he tells the story, puts it in slightly different words. He says, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, the blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as Matthew recounts the story, he includes the detail that Jesus said, this is the blood of the covenant. Now, there's a, there's a promise in this covenant. God is going to forgive sins. He mentions one of those two promises of the new covenant that his death would make possible. In the same language as Mount Sinai, God created a covenant through the blood of a sacrifice. And Jesus' blood provided the necessary blood of the covenant. The story of Jesus' death is the story of how God is making it possible for people to belong Him on the basis of a promised relationship in covenant. It's given in grace. No one deserves it. And because of this, everyone who has entered that new covenant relationship can know for certain based on the faithfulness of God's promises that God has said to them, you are mine and I have forgiven you. And so Christians can know for certain that they are God's people and that they have been forgiven based on Christ and what God has promised through that covenant. Because of what God accomplished, everyone can know for certain, if they're part of that new covenant, that they are His. Jeremiah had announced the coming of the new covenant and what God would promise to people. Hebrews chapters 8 and 9 confirm that, and quote, Jeremiah's prophecy, saying this is what Jesus' ministry and death was all about. He brought those promises and made it possible with His death. But there's a question that needs to be answered. Who are those who have entered this new covenant relationship? Who are those who are receiving the promises of God that they can know they are God's people and they have been forgiven? Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, puts it in these words. You are all sons of God. You belong to God through faith in Christ Jesus. It's not enough to know that Jesus came and died that He died to make this possible, that say, yeah, that's an event of history. And I believe that it really happened. No, but it is those who have trusted in Christ. They are relying and responding to that death that become sons of God. But Paul then goes on in the same verse in the original language. He continues on to explain how these people trusted in Christ. And he says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves 
with Christ. Paul explains how those early disciples in the Galatian churches had relied upon Christ, how they had expressed their faith in Him in order to become God's people. It was, they responded to the Gospel, they responded to Jesus by being baptized. And when they were baptized, they were baptized into Christ. They became part of the body of Christ. And if it, were, if it, it is as it were, then putting on and being clothed with Christ. You see, baptism is an act of faith. And with baptism, people are relying upon Jesus' death and what God has promised through that death that made possible this relationship with God. The Gospel of John is going to teach us these very same principles. John chapter 1 and verse 12. John writes, To all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent. We're not talking about a physical birth, but rather born of God. Once again, it's not enough just to know that Jesus died. To become a child of God, a person must choose to believe in Him. That is, a person must receive Jesus, respond to Him to receive Him. In John chapter 3, and verse 5, the Gospel goes on to explain how people are to respond with belief in Christ. And how they were to receive Him in order that they might receive that new life from God as someone who's been born of God. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Baptism is an act of faith. And with baptism, people are looking at the cross and are saying, I am going to rely upon Christ and what He did at the cross to make that new covenant possible. And when people choose to rely upon Jesus by being baptized, they enter into that new covenant and they receive the promise that God says to them, you are My people. You now have a new birth and a new identity and a new beginning as Mine. Because... With baptism, a person is entering into this new covenant relationship that Jesus' death made possible. It's why we find the New Testament describing the purpose of baptism as providing the other promise of the new covenant as well. For example, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter is preaching there on the day of Pentecost, and he says, Repent and be baptized to the crowds, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The people were to be baptized for, and the purpose of it was so that their sins could be forgiven. They would receive the other promise that the covenant that God made through Christ's death. And they would be forgiven, and they're going to become His. Later, Paul, as he recounts his own conversion, he recounts how Ananias had told him, What are you waiting for, Paul? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away. And the second promise of the new covenant is being given because people are being baptized as a response to Christ. In the case of Acts chapter 2, we find that the Lord was adding to His people daily those who were being saved. It's God who takes people and makes them His. It's God who gives new life. We are to respond in trusting Christ. And the Gospel instructs us to be baptized as that faith response. Baptism is an act of faith. 
when with baptism people are relying upon Jesus, when people choose to rely upon Him by being baptized, they enter this new covenant relationship and receive God's promises. Perhaps a, an illustration can easily explain this relationship between faith and, and baptism. The story's been told, and it's probably built off of a, 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 a true event, but um, elaborated some. But, but as the story goes, there's this guy who strung a rope across Niagara Falls. And he pushed a wheelbarrow across and came back, and the crowds cheered. And then he said, do you think that I can push it across and back with 175 pounds of potatoes in it? And the crowd said, yeah, we think you can. So he, he starts off and he pushes the wheelbarrow across and he comes back with 170 pounds of potatoes in his wheelbarrow. And the crowd is just going ecstatic and they're going wild. And then he asks a question and he says, do you think I can do it with a man in my wheelbarrow? And the crowds yell, you can do it with a man in your wheelbarrow. They believe he can push a man in a wheelbarrow across that and back. And then he says, who's going to be first? And you see, the people believe he can do it. But no one wants to trust in him. No one has, is going to put their faith in him. No one in this context is going to believe in him. Because if they believe in Him, if they trust in Him, if they are going to put their faith in Him, they climb into the wheelbarrow. And He carries them across to the other side. Jesus is saying, I can get you across the abyss. I can get you over to the promised land where you're going to be God's people. And God is, is promised He's going to forgive you. He's going to claim you. You're going to be His. I died for you. I made the new covenant possible. But you're going to have to respond to me in faith. You're going to have to trust in me. You're going to have to believe in me. And the gospel says, we're going to believe in him, trust in him. We're going to have faith in him. We need to respond to Jesus by being baptized. And if you will, baptism is like climbing into the wheelbarrow. Saying, Lord, take me across. And when someone does, when they respond in faith to Christ, God says, I'm giving you the promises of the new covenant that Jesus' death made possible. You're mine. You can know it. You're, you're mine, and I've forgiven all of your sins. Now live. Live living sacrifices. Live lives that, that bring glory to God and live with confidence as God's people. And it's not based on what people think or claim. It's, not, it's based on God's perspective. Not our perspective. God's perspective. So who are God's people? Based on covenant. It's not based on works, how good people can be. No, but it's through a covenant that God makes and offers in grace to people that He says, I'm promising to claim you as mine. And Christ died to make this new covenant possible whereby God could claim people and forgive them. But it's only those who trust in Christ who receive and enter into what Christ made possible. And the Gospel tells us that we need to be baptized in order to become a follower of Jesus and receive what He 
died for. That is, to become someone who is relying upon the One who died for them. In Scripture, the Lord has revealed His perspective about who His people are. So God's people can live with confidence that God sees us as His people. It might be this morning that although someone may have lived many years trying to honor and serve the Lord, that they have not yet responded to Jesus Christ crucified in baptism, going down to the water, realizing I'm relying on Him who died for me, and I'm trusting that God is going to give me the promises of that new covenant, that I will be forgiven, that God is going to claim me as His. If someone has not yet responded to the Gospel, we're going to invite you in just a moment to come. But it might also be that there are prayer requests or other ways that our our church can be of assistance. So whatever it is, let us know while we stand and sing. I know that my Redeemer lives and never prays.